Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Every evening we listen to them talk on radio. Don't you listen to the radio? One of these nights. Tonight. All right, let's hear it. Where's the radio? One of these J-talking nights. J-talking with Bradley J. You're going to call up Bradley J now. Hello? Mm, and tell him why you're right. Hello? Who is calling? Can you hear me? Now everybody's calling. The fever is high. This is now your chance to discourse and more. Thank you. Trying to have a conversation. Yeah, Jay's got his problems and he's got desires. But you got a few of your own. WBZ News Radio 1030. WBZ, Thanksgiving for most of the year is kind of abstract. <laughs> but you know it's getting real when Richard Pickering is in the house, De- uh, Deputy Director of Plymouth Plantation. I love it when you come in for all kinds of reasons. You personally, the the history of the place, the history of the time. Love it. Love it all. Thanks for coming in again. I look forward to this every year. Thanks for coming in. Shouts to some people before we get started. Yeah. Uh, During the course of the year, you interact with a lot of the the folks down there and the trustees of Plymouth Plantation. So hi to Marty Mugar and Doris Wareham and the gang at the Hot Chocolate Sparrow, correct? Yes, in Orleans. In Orleans, that's Elliot, John, John, Jim, Jim, Peter, and more. Yes. All right. <laughs> so we have a lot to cover again. Thanks for coming in. What's the latest down at Plymouth Plantation? We're getting ready for Thursday. Okay. And what does that involve this year? Well, the Thanksgiving dinners will serve, I think, 2,000 or more. All Thanksgiving dinners are sold out. And there, there are two or three... Iterations of it, right? Yes. So we have a seated turkey buffet, and then we have what we call America's Hometown Thanksgiving, and that's a recreation of the dinner that was served at Harvard the year Lincoln declared Thanksgiving. Okay. That's That has uh, entertainment between the different courses, but so that people can get a wonderful turkey meal, we've added a walk-in buffet. So if they buy a ticket to visit the museum— they can go to a walk-in buffet and get a come as come as you are informal informal get some turkey. buffet but they can at least have a thanksgiving dinner with us now did you is one of those you mentioned the thanksgiving that's the food that they ate in the in the 1600s that's the harvest dinner and okay. we have three more of those available so i i thought they were all sold out no no the thanksgiving dinners are all sold okay. out but we have three harvest dinners okay. with some seats left and folks, if they go to the website, plimoth.org, they can see the harvest dinners for this week. And what's in the, what is included in the food in the harvest dinner? I uh, love hearing about this every year. This is the, the family dining style. There is um, turkey with onion sauce. I think there's a chine of pork. There are porridges. There's stewed pumpkin. It's it's a huge meal. Any fish? 
There may be cod. Because that they would have had cod, There right? is so much in, in that particular meal. I can't remember all the elements. The food just keeps coming. And it's done family style. So you're meeting these strangers who are seated with you at table. It really is wonderful. And you're taught period manners. You learn some period songs. There are role players there. And there's a modern host who walks you through dining in the period as well. Are you encouraged to use period language? Do you teach them any words? They could probably pick some up from the, the, from role, the role players player? as they're visiting with them. So things have changed a lot as far as how people treat each other. Uh, and you're meeting strangers. What is the guidance on how to treat each other with this thing? Um, I have served as the host for the dinners in the last couple of years. And at the beginning of each seating, and I'm with 250 people at each seating, I say to them, I want you to think back to 1621 and the native people, the English people that were here and how they could not speak to each other, that you had Habamak and Tisquantum who could speak English. At this point, none of the English people could speak the native language, but they came together, they played sports, they watched each other's military exercises on Thanksgiving. On Thanksgiving, and they dined. They were together for three days, getting along. Three days. So, can you reach out to this person on the other side of the table who can speak the same language that you do? Find out their story, share your own story, and so when we find that this particular holiday, which people are telling us when they're with their families, is so divisive, if it moves into politics. People can't stay away from it in the family setting. But there's something about being in a public setting among new faces that people stay on those things that are really critically important. The idea of being thankful, of being with family. of, And so what I find are beautiful things. Like last year, as I was leaving the second seating I did, and I had yet again said, reach out to those strangers, I'm hosting simultaneous dinners in two rooms. So I do it once and then run to the next room and do exactly the same thing three minutes later. As I'm trying to get out of the room, I feel this hand on the back of my sport coat. And the woman said, Richard, we're from six different countries at this table, and none of them knew each other. But in those few minutes, they all identified the six countries. There were um, Brits Africans, Chinese, uh, Venezuelan, and they were all at one table together. Are these the folks that uh, vowed to do it again every year? No, they're probably too far away. They're, they're too far away. But, but some we, people we, do. We, we do have people that met at Plymouth Plantation that they had small families or their families were spread across the country. And one would say, honey, can we just go to Plymouth Plantation so we don't need to cook? And they would be with other couples and so we have one table at the 11 o'clock seating that year in and year out, those couples asked to be together at that particular table. And they didn't know each other before they dined at Plymouth Plantation. And that's very special to be a part of. It sounds like civility is a theme, even though it's unspoken. And what do you suppose brings that about? Is there something about the environment, the context, something about you what we're, that makes people automatically civil. Institutionally, we're trying to be a place where people can agree in the classic American way of civility and of 
coming to consensus and moving ahead. And that's one of the things about the 17th story, 17th century story that's so compelling is if you look at the places where peoples were able to get along and talk and exchange, the first Thanksgiving becomes an important diplomatic event because for the English, when they make that treaty agreement with Wampanoag people in March of 1621, for them it's written down in words. For Native people, agreements are reaffirmed by exchange of gifts, by spending time together. And just behavior. And so the first Thanksgiving in the following September 1621, for Native people, that's an affirmation of the agreement they've made in March. And to think they can be together for three days and do joyous things, yet they cannot speak to each other. They're having to depend on translators and body language. But it's it's an amazing moment. And my friend Nana Pashmet, the Wampanoag historian, he said, Richard, we have to stop putting the shadow of King Philip's war on this event that the people that were there in those three days in 1621 had no idea a juggernaut of English settlement was coming 10 years later. None of them could have seen that between 1630 and 1642, there will be 18 to 25,000 English men and women and children and their cattle arriving in the colonies. How was the shadow of King Philip's War put upon it? Prior. So many times, because people know what was coming, they project the darkness backward. And instead of looking at the moments with the eyes of its original participants, they were looking at these moments with the knowledge of what would follow them. I'm. This is news to me, even after all your visits, that it was a three-day event. Yeah. And so they would eat all day and then sleep and then eat again. <laughs> and they would play lacrosse whatever high lie or whatever it was whatever sports yeah and then they would sleep and then eat again yes yep three days and there was recently about two years ago we did intense work on the first pamphlet that the pilgrims published in february of 1622 and it just amazes us how we can look at a document again and again and again and something new will strike us And in the course of that common looking at the document with groups of native readers, colonial readers, one of the things that struck us is that the night Massasoit came to the English, that first day, at the end of the day before he returns to his people, he says to John Carver, oh, my wives and my women are half a mile away, and we will be back in eight or nine days to plant on the other side of the the brook. What? Wow. None of us had noticed this detail, which meant, you know, there's been this argument, was there an invitation to the first Thanksgiving? How did these more than 90 Native men come to be there? Well, they're living on the other side of the brook. Right. It's like you and I are waving to the next radio station over there. You wave a drumstick. And what that means is these people are seeing each other every day. Right. Every day in the first year or two of English presence on Wampanoag land. And I think what happens over time is Massasoit withdraws. He knows these strangers will cause him no trouble, and he withdraws, and they're allowed to expand their corn ground outward. Because what happens when they divide the land in 1623 is Habamak, 
Massasoit's ambassador, he's suddenly farming between Hopkins and Howland. He's got English people right around him, and I think it's because Massasoit is using other corn ground and allowing the English to expand outward because now he understands them and can trust them. 90 Native American men know women, children, or were there? That has always been the classic depiction that it's only men. But we only have one English description, and he may be just valuing the men in the same way that in England you would look at a queen processing through London or a king processing through London, and you would say they were followed by hundreds of men in their trains. And so by saying King Massasoit and his 90 men, that may be an English value. And if you add in that they're living on the other side of the brook, just 10 feet away, there are Native women and children there too. It's just in the English view, they're not worthy to be reported on. So our understanding of this holiday could be changing in the way we see it physically. How many settlers at this time? Uh, uh, there are, I think, 48 that live. Uh, there are four adult married women. There is an adult woman whose name is Dorothy. We do not know her last name. She was a maidservant. And then there are a number of teenage girls. So what we believe is that it's the married women, this maidservant Dorothy, teenage girls, and maybe um, servants and unmarried men. They're working to prepare this feast over the course of the three days. But Native people are also bringing food to it as well because Massasoit sends his men out and they return with five bucks of venison and those are gifted to the most significant men among the English. Wow. So it's an incredible exchange. And uh, our food historian, Kathleen Wall, she has a really fascinating talk about how for the English to receive venison from Wampanoag people had all of these nonverbal messages that the natives never could have known they were sending, that an English person wanted venison to celebrate the baptism of a child or a wedding or a key life passage. You were hoping that a friend of a little higher social status would share that meat with you if they could. So now they are being given the most esteemed meat by native people. Right. And the native people couldn't have understood the messaging. How long was it all friendly like this? How long before it started to fall apart? It begins to decline after the death of Governor Bradford and Massasoit. They they pass within three years of each other. Bradford dies in May of 1657 and we believe that Massasoit has died by 1660. So they were the two wise leaders that kept it all together. And they actually were working through other people so that often they were not seeing each other, but they were advising really fine ambassadors Good. back and forth. And I think sometimes I've been too judgmental of the second and third generations. They aren't as accomplished or as educated as the first generation, but they also had much larger population crises and agricultural crises than the first generation did to deal with. So speaking of Governor Bradford, did I hear that you are writing a book? Yes. Yeah, I'm trying to finally accomplish something. Um, I'm a man of no discipline, and so I uh, 
signed with a, a wonderful company called Paper Raven Books out of Colorado. And every week I send off my sheets. So we're going to try to get this done. What made you take it on? Being the busy man that you are and all. I've, I never finished my dissertation after all these years of school. And I thought I really need the pressure put on me. So will this satisfy that? It's going to do dual duty. I oh, yeah. good for you. Yeah. So this publication. So did you have to get approval for this to be to count to your dissertation? I'm I'm still talking on that. Okay, yeah. good. I, I was never. I wasn't not going to bring up the dissertation. Yeah, my, like I did yeah. every year past. I said I'm not going to bring it up. <laughs> my advisor said just do anything to get this done. Okay. Other personal activities for you in the past year. Wow. I mean, when I say personal, not super personal. <laughs> Mostly it's getting up in the morning, going to get that cup of tea at the Hot Chocolate Sparrow, and working 90 minutes before I leave for work. So just completing that 90 minutes each day must make you feel better. It does. And, it? and really, I am the most ill-disciplined person in the whole wide world. But this particular company, they give you guidelines of what you must produce each week. And you have to analyze when you go astray and when you resist production. So it's exactly what I needed. Yep. And you, you probably had a sort of empty feeling before and now that's been healed my point is you don't even need to finish it for it to make you feel better yeah the, the 90 minutes a day you did your 90 minutes you did your duty i never uh really understood how satisfying discipline can be and just getting into a rhythm and it has become very ritualized and everybody at the coffee shop is so good they understand if they see my phone running down it's because I'm doing what's called Pomodoro technique, where you start a timer and you go for 25 minutes. You stop, you rest for five, and then you start that 25 minutes again. And the, everybody is just lovely about staying back if they see the timer running down yep. and just letting me be in my space. That's cool. Lots, there's lots to talk about. Now, <laughs> last time you were here, the big event was the, the Mayflower 2 and they had these big, long wooden nails called trennels. And people were had been signing them, and they were going to be pounded into the ship. So if you wanted to have you know a little bit of recognition or a little bit of you in the ship, you you could buy a, the right to sign, have signed one of these, and it would be pounded into yes. the Mayflower too. And you have one. I have one. And you actually there's a book that shows it. Can you? Explain that. The builder of Mayflower 2 was a man named Stuart Upham, and he brought out a book about how the ship was constructed at Brixham Shipyard. You really needed to have a sailor's vocabulary to understand the book. And so the museum, um, with editing by Tom Begley and new production design by Rachel Perez, they took Stuart Upham's manuscript and put modern illustrations against it. So you could see the work in 1957, and you can see the current restoration work that's going on between Plymouth Plantation and Mystic Seaport. But what Tom and Rachel did is this beautiful introduction 
of supporting material that makes Upham's manuscript understandable if you aren't a sailor and don't know all the terms that he's using. That's cool. And it really is a beautiful book. And we wanted people to see the trenels or treen nails. And it happened that yours was one of the four that was there for the the photography. So I brought it to you tonight. Yay! So can folks buy this book? Yes. Okay. Uh, they can get it. It's on sale at Plymouth At the Plantation. museum shop or they can get it online. And Tom and Rachel did a gorgeous job with this book. Two just shining young people. It's a beautiful, beautiful work. Folks always looking for stocking stuffers or nice gifts that are super thoughtful. And as I understand it, there's a gift that's a wooden heart you can buy that's made from wood from the... From Mayflower 2. Mayflower from 1957. Two. And that wood has been removed because it's being re redone. Yes. And they made these heart-shaped pendants out of the wood, like maybe two inches tall and like three-quarters of an inch thick at its thickest point, something like that. There is a woman in Connecticut. She's part of the Connecticut Mayflower Society. Her name is Mary Brown, and now she's on Plymouth Plantations Museum Council. She's one of our advisors. And this was her idea. What was going to happen to the wood coming off the ship and could you make it into these hearts? And so she has found so many carvers in Connecticut who are willing to make these wooden hearts. And they come with a certificate that this is Mayflower 2 wood, and then the carver signs his or her name to it. And they make great Christmas ornaments or just little keepsakes or um, worry stones. If you're someone who likes to rub a worry stone, they're really good for that. But you get all the wonderful little flaws in the wood. The the pitch and tar is there on some of it. And it's just, it's a nice thing. It's cool. And can you give me the rundown on the status of the, the whole refitting and as, as much as you can? Yeah, it's going on beautifully. So we're planning a relaunch of the ship September 7th, 2019 at Mystic Seaport. She'll go back into the water. I can't tell you her departure date yet. That hasn't been determined. It will depend on other things. But Labor Day weekend 2019, everybody should come to Plymouth Plantation because we're casting a new bell for the ship. Mm -hmm. When the ship came over in 1957, she had a real 17th century bell aboard her. And that just is not historically responsible to put a real 17th century bell into the elements. So we're casting a new reproduction 17th century bell. And uh, the country's only moving bell foundry will come to the museum. And over the course of two days, the bell will be cast. It will come out of its mold. It will be polished and ready to go to Mystic Seaport to be put on Mayflower too. People can come and be part of an ingot parade where you stand and you pass ingot from ingot in, and then it ultimately it goes into the hot fire. And because of Mayflower 2's association with Mayflower 2, we're inviting veterans that if they want to put in mementos, metal, anything of sentimental value to them that they would want as part of that bell, bring it to the museum with them that day. And put it in the bell? Yeah. Melt it down? Yeah. Like a metal or something? Yes. And this particular bell foundry has done some similar projects where veterans have brought their their medals and other mementos of war to go into a bell wow. in a specific, you know, patriotic setting. It's very moving. So what was the how 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. How did Christmas get treated that first year? You had some, half the people were religious Curmudgeons, yeah. <laughs> and the other half were merchants. I don't know if it was exactly half. How, how did they? How did that work out? The they started to labor on their houses on Christmas Day. Okay, it, for them it was a work day. Right, there's no time for the but celebration. The Mayflower was a mile out in the harbor in an area of the harbor known as the Cow's Yard, and so at the end of the work day, the men went back to the ship, and we know that that night. Um, Master Jones, the the master of the ship, he shared some of his beer rations with the guests that there could be a little merriment, but really there was there was nothing that could be done. Maybe they cut boughs and brought decorative nah, boughs. That's out, a waste but, of time. They're um, trying to not to die. Yeah. What a dark time that must have been. From arrival, you're hungry, it's barren, you don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. You must almost expect to die. And the month of December the weather was particularly bad. And in Mort's relation, that first pamphlet, the writers do make notations of what the weather is like and what they're facing uh, in certain circumstances. So when Dorothy Bradford falls to her death from Mayflower, it's been improperly assumed by modern people that it's suicide. She was on the deck of a ship in leather or wooden sole shoes when we're told in Mort's relation, these have been days of ice storms. It's, she slipped off the deck and into the yeah the briny deep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Who would commit suicide after going all that way? Well, in the 19th century, it, there was a, a short story writer who was writing for Scrivener's Magazine, and she created this story of the despondent young woman who had left her child in Holland looking at the frightening wilderness, and therefore she needed to destroy herself. And it was so dramatically compelling that even great historians have fallen for it, and they have not looked at the way suicide was treated in the 17th century. It's like, come on, people, look at Hamlet. They didn't want to bury Ophelia. In the the 16th or 17th centuries in England, if you were a suicide, you were buried at the crossroads with a stake through your heart. Yeah. You know, it was not... Uh, and no one would have married into your family. Wow. Because it wasn't considered a solitary psychiatric event as we consider it in an age of psychiatry. It's considered something that congenitally affects the entire family. A congenital defect. Yeah. Wow. Do you think that the author made that up as some sort of 
academic effort? Like she needed to publish and come up with a theory? She was a, a very popular romance writer, and she had done a series of historical novels about the pilgrims and was very famous for the, the romances that she created. And this was just a, she was a popular novelist and popular short story writer, so she was just going back to her material with a new eye to it. And there's a wreath-making workshop. Yes, we have a great new garden curator, uh, Ryan Garafine. And so he's actually doing two workshops. Only one is being advertised because the first one sold out without even being advertised. So for anyone who wants to make a beautiful wreath with a really talented gardener and designer, you know, come meet Ryan. He's great. He's already made the museum look more beautiful, and he's only been with us. He, he just arrived a year ago. He's doing extraordinary things. I have an idea. I didn't think of this idea. I saw it somewhere. Somebody's already doing it, but you could do it too, I think. Uh, when the, the settlers came, they had a clear fields, right? No. Oh, uh, okay. No, they... Um, stones move stones? They planted on what had been oh. Patuxet. Well, here's my idea. Ground. Here's my idea, and you'd have to come up with a way to weave it in. <laughs> but I, I was at the Boston Public Market, and I saw folks were taking stonewall stones, actually field stones, and they cut them with a the saw, and they polished them really nicely as food heaters. Wow. Yeah, and they're beautiful, and they have the provenance of the stone on the back. This came from Far Farmer Jones Field, and what, it's something probably yeah. won't work out. I just wanted to share wow, that. Wow, that's beautiful. Breakfast with Santa. Santa. <laughs> uh, it's popular. We've been doing it for years. Families can come. Um, the kids can tell Santa what they want for Christmas and then have a really good breakfast. It's just a, it's a lovely family event. And uh, it's in the Henry Hornblower, the second visitor center. Yes. I love the series Horatio Hornblower. Is he related? No. That's made up Horatio? Made up Horatio. Okay. Good name, though. Henry okay. Hornblower? Yes, he's he was our founder. Wow. And his family is still actively involved with the museum. His stepson is our chairman of the board. His grandchildren, his grandnieces and nephews are involved with the museum. And this is all they've discovered the legacy in the last 3 or 4 years. They knew of it, but within these recent years they've really engaged it and they're they're a wonderful wonderful family. Can you give me a little bit of history of Plymouth Plantation? Like we're gonna have the, our, the original setup with a couple of a couple of buildings and a and a fort, right? Yes, we were founded in 1947. Harry Hornblower had the idea prior to the Second World War breaking out in Britain. I think he had started thinking about this in the late 30s, but nothing happened with the war intervening until 47. He put up a Pilgrim House on the Plymouth waterfront in 1948. And in one year, the house saw 300,000 visitors, and it made Ripley's Believe It or Not, the response to this one house. And so Harry was thinking, if this one house shows this much audience response, so then a fort was built on the waterfront, equally popular. And then in the mid-1950s, they started building the historic village three miles away on acreage that had been the Hornblower's summer estate. And then... Mayflower arrives from England in 1957, and that's when it really begins to take off because Time Life puts a photographer aboard the ship. So 
they're yeah. they're photographing the entire thing. Mayflower's Crossing makes the cover of Life magazine. That's big. Especially in '57. And two, Virginia has never forgiven Massachusetts for that because 1957 was the 350th anniversary of Jamestown, and nobody noticed. Yeah, uh, I think. I, I wish I could get Ellie, our executive director, on the phone because she'll remember this quotation perfectly. I'm just parsing it. Someone in Virginia said in 1957, Virginia and its anniversary versus Mayflower was like trying to play the piano in a windstorm. No one was paying any attention to Virginia. How many visitors do you get these days per year? Uh, we're slightly down because the ship is away that the the Mayflower has such an international reputation that many people are drawn to the museum by the ship. So we're about 330,000, but with the return of the ship and then you've got the 400th anniversary of Mayflower coming in 2020, then you have the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving in 2021, and then you have the 75th anniversary of Plymouth Plantation in 2022. Those those are going to be years of high visitation. So we're present. We're trying to put ourselves in the in the best facing situation. We're with Richard Pickering, deputy director of our very own Plymouth Plantation. It's a it's a real gem down there. It's, if you haven't been down, it's cool. You also have a thing called Lunch and Learn. Yeah, it's a monthly lecture. Uh, the first Thursday of the first full week of the month. And the lectures are not uh, just about the 17th century. Speakers are coming in. The man coming up this month is a classical Greek specialist from Gordon College who's going to talk about Athens at the height of the classical age. Uh, we had another professor talking about the Salem witchcraft trials. And these lectures draw anywhere from 70 to 110 people. They're very popular. They're 50 minutes long, so people can get there, eat a brown bag lunch in their seat, and then get back to work if they want to. So you bring your own lunch, you sit down, and you eat your sandwich, mm -hmm. and you enjoy the, the lecture. Yeah, it's free with membership. There's a small fee if you're a non-member, but they're very popular. Membership, that'd be a good gift, wouldn't it? It is a good gift, and there are discounts for giving holiday memberships. And um, for everybody to know, Black Friday, online and on-site, it's 30% discount on everything at the museum shops. And the museum shops are open throughout the month of December, seven days a week, 10 to 7. If someone just wants a quiet, gentle place to shop and not have to fight a mall, we've got great, beautiful things. What are some of the cool things you have? Well, we've got a lot of um, beautiful wampum jewelry, uh, soaps. Wait, now, wampum is shells? and Wamp Wampum is a, a highly polished shell. Okay. And we have some beautiful examples of that. Uh, soaps and ca and beeswax candles that are made at the museum, textiles that are made at the museum as well. So they're just lovely things to give. I'm a big soap fan. Can you buy these things online? You can. I think so. Okay. If not, I'll send you something. Well, the soap, <laughs> is it made in, you know, the old school way or is it just it's is it regular it's soap? It's made in the old school way in new school circumstances. Okay. Yeah. And, all right. So it's, it's not a, a pilgrim woman standing over a, a hot pot. 
they're they're made in the modern craft center. Okay. Back to flat. I'm just for a second going to flash back to Thanksgiving. <laughs> One of the chores of Thanksgiving is dishes, and I at first I thought, well, they didn't have dishes then, but of course they did. They had dishes. Yeah. But it must have been a real problem doing dishes back then. It, did you have to lug them down to the waterfront, it, or what? Do you, what did you, you know, do? Just brush them off? How often have in recent years have we heard discussions of how difficult the lives of women are around the world because of the water carrying burdens that they have? Yeah. That we, with running water, aren't aware of how much time women around the world are spending carrying water long distances and it's like okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes that in the 17th century that you're going out to the springs that are surrounding the plantation and bringing that in on yoke and buckets. That's so, water is insanely heavy too. Yeah. And so I was thinking about that today because I was in the village today as Elder William Brewster. We had so many children visiting today. They needed every body that they could get on the historic site. So I was down there in character and I was looking at the the two kettles that were in my fire thinking, and it was the first time this has struck me in a very long time, how hard it was going to be to get that water there. You know, we have modern running water right. on the, the site. So we're not carrying it those distances that people did in the period, but just carrying a heavy kettle up a hill is enough. It's no wonder we're overweight these days because of all the things we don't do mm -hmm. don't don't carry water don't do your laundry by banging it on a rock <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a lot of energy mm -hmm. and people are doing that stuff all day yeah hoeing in the fields we do nothing the distinction between the number of calories that was required in the 17th century and the number we need now to get along it's it's do you have the numbers it's something like 4,000 difference. We're we're at 2,000. They were at six? They were about six, I think, for someone who is working, yeah. doing heavy labor. They must have been so strong and so tough. Even my grandfather was so tough. Uh-huh. You know, he used to log in the woods with cattle. And that, and that amazes me that people were asking me, because one of the most famous stories is that half of the town dies within the first two and a half months. They're in New England. And people were asking me about it today. And we know that at the very worst, there were just five or six people that were taking care of everybody else. And one of them happens to be William Brewster. William Bradford names two men by name, Miles Standish and William Brewster, as being those who um, dressed and undressed people when their clothing was soiled, who fed them, who cooked for them, who changed their linens. And thinking about the strength of that man, because he's he's my age at that point. He's in his 50s when he's doing this. And uh, the survivors must have been incredibly strong people. With the fascination we have now with DNA, do you get is there pressure to find the bones of original 
Mayflower people so that they can have their DNA tested? Well, there is um, a cache of bones that has been in the sarcophagus over uh, Plymouth Rock, but I don't know of any plans to to do anything with those those do, bones. Do, do people ever ask? I, I can I can only imagine that people who somehow feel they're better if they are attached to original pilgrims <laughs> would want DNA proof. A lot of a lot of people, um, and there is you find that the genealogical societies are creating these vast bodies of DNA evidence to to be able to link people. And people do take the test, but really the Mayflower people in particular are so well documented. No other, necessary. No other small group has been so studied uh, to make those straight links of descendancy. But people do like the DNA affirmation of, oh, it looks like I'm mostly from Britain or I'm mostly from Italy. Yeah. They like that. But it's still very imprecise. Do Are there any spots where they know that Mayflower people are actually buried and their bones are actually there maybe? Yes, yeah. You can't tell me where, but you can tell me who. Uh, we know um, William Bradford is is on Burial Hill in Plymouth, and his his gravestone is marked. So there are a number of them that Miles have, Standish. Miles Standish, his uh, gravesite was one of the earliest archaeological digs in American history. Wow! He was dug in the 19th century, and they were able to see his red hair. They saw that he had when um, they when they exhumed him. Mm-hmm. Wow! So, you know, they know how big he was. They know where his bones had been broken in different military. And it was him. It was it was Miles Standish. Just scientifically, how what was what is the condition of the bones? Are they broken apart at all, or, or are they still pretty I, intact? I think, and I'm just going on very poor memory here. I think his body was pretty much intact. Wow. He was still in his winding sheet. Okay. And there are, you know, as anyone does collect souvenirs, there are still these souvenir examples of little pieces of the linen that his body was. So you can buy pieces of his winding sheet. Um, It's, it's one of those things that's in, in private hands. Okay. For the most part. How many of them exist? I'm not sure, but I've heard that they are in private hands somewhere. These little bits that, when he was taken from the ground. Back to Plymouth Plantation, what you'll see if you go there, you have a new abode, correct? A uh, we, we too. Uh, yes, that what we have done as part of this new interpretive plan called Along the Shores of Change, where instead of just looking at the 1620s, we're taking on the entire 17th century so we can understand the world that the colonists and native peoples made together in cooperation and in conflict and look at change over time. So last year, we opened a new We Too that the interior has nothing of European origin. It represents the thousands of years of native history before they knew anything of Europeans or Europeans knew anything of them. Then as you leave that, you go to an area that represents native life after the English were on the land, and about the first 10 years of English occupation. And then a new We Too is being built closer to the English village that will show the years 1660 to 1680. 
So our guests can very quickly go from no European presence, the beginnings of a constant English presence there, and then 50 years later, this is the cultural exchange that's gone on. And so even though architecturally the house is very similar, it will have English elements in the new We Too. It'll have some English furniture and textiles mixed with native textiles and native furniture. Is it 10 years down, 10 years on, did uh, you say? It'll be 50 years 50, on. 50, okay. Yeah. So what did the settlers, settlers, the white men and mm -hmm. women adopt from the natives? Uh, from the very beginning, maize, the fact that they could not have survived had Tisquantum not taught them how to plant Indian corn, plant maize. So they, from the moment one, they are accepting native technologies because when they stole the corn from native barns in, on Lower Cape Cod. Some, some of them, little stashes of corn were buried, right? Yes, they, they took upwards of half of one family's winter supply. <sighs> they clearly recognized it was grain, but they didn't have the means to plant it correctly. They would have planted it like English grain, so barley, peas, wheat, rye, oats. You broadcast them on the ground and then lightly work them in the soil. That is not the way maize grows. It's a very fragile plant in its beginnings. It needs to be partnered with squash and uh, beans because the beans growing up the, the stalk strengthen, strengthen the I stalk. I did not know that which does not have a strong root system. It has to be continually tended. And then the squash or the pumpkins, their giant leaves are keeping down weed growth. Is the, the original maize like the corn we see now, sweet corn, or is it multicolored? It's, like? it's multicolored. And how do they cook it? Do you know? Um, they just, it's, they, it's dried. Yeah. It, so in this time of year, what you'll see is a lot of braided corn. So the, the husk is pulled back and it's used as the braiding string to hang it, it up it, to hang it up and you're just creating ropes and ropes of corn to dry that will then be ground and made into meal and into grits so they didn't eat it off the cob no, no is that, it too difficult to eat off the cob that it was, too hard? It was considered wasteful to eat it when it was green like that interesting yes yeah. i'm glad you brought up waste because you know when all of you out there have your thanksgiving try try to think of the original Thanksgiving and how, what a sin it would be to throw something away. And even when, you, when you're when you having your Thanksgivings at Plymouth Plantation, it must be horrible if you have to throw something away. Do you yeah. tell people, don't take any more than you, eat what you want, but please don't waste it. Do you say and that? The museum and Sodexo, which is our catering company, have worked very hard to minimize any waste. And so we've actually adapted the Lincoln menu and we've looked at what has gotten eaten over the years and those things that are historically interesting but the guest does not want to eat them we have substituted those things from the period that are more inviting to them so to minimize any waste and we had um for members of Plymouth Plantation, your magazines are, are coming to you, the annual magazine, and there is an article featuring our interns from this year. And one of the interns did a brilliant environmental study and projected uh, how Plymouth Plantation could even be better at recycling 
all elements. Wow. You mentioned uh, members. Now, membership. What are some things that membership includes? It's uh, depending upon the level of admission. A single person, of course, gets free admission, 12 months uh, of membership. You can buy it for families and different uh, sizes and types of families as well. You always get a discount when you're shopping. You always get first access to any kind of event so that if a person wants to have that bucket list Thanksgiving at Plymouth Plantation, members get the first chance to buy Thanksgiving seats. That's good. And and there's this. You get to tell people that you're a member. Yeah. I mean, that's that's cool. Yeah, it really is. The museum is a is a pretty amazing place. Richard, thank you so much. You have a great Thanksgiving and a great Christmas season. If you want to come back towards Christmas, please do. If you, if you I'd don't, love that. Whatever you want to do is fine. Thank Richard you. Pickering of Plymouth Plantations. WBZ, thanks. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.